presenting the information is easy. The difficult mm -hmm. thing is capturing attention and making it exciting. So one of the biggest things that we're always looking for in a sports broadcast is the storylines. What's the story? What's happening going into this game? Oh, this, this team is on a 14-game winning streak? That's never happened before in the NBA. It's the longest winning streak so far for the last 20 years. That's the story coming in. Or, hey, this team is expected to win the game. The other team's out shooting them, and they're historically not very good. The frustration of the winning team. Now that's the story. So we're always looking for those little moments, all those extra things to bring the emotion of the players, the emotion of the event to the viewer. Welcome to Events Demystified Podcast, where we explore and demystify the world of in-person, virtual, hybrid event AV production and technology by sharing insightful tips, tricks and tactics to make your events a success. This podcast is brought to you by Tree Fan Events, a woman-owned boutique event production agency. And your host is Anka Trafan, a technical event planner and producer with almost two decades of hands-on technical experience in event production. Welcome to another episode of Events Demystify Podcast, your one-stop shop for tangible, technical, and practical planning advice for anyone in the events industry. This podcast is brought to you by Trifan Events, and I'm your host, Anka Trifan. We've talked at large about virtual events that were brought on by COVID. I feel like if I am to mention that one more time, I'll probably come out of it kind of scarred with PTSD. Who knows? One thing that we haven't necessarily touched on is another type of event which I'm quite excited to tap into with my featured guest today, and that is broadcasting events. Now, how are those events different than, say, live streaming events and virtual events? We'll have to find out because there's certainly a difference, and we will want to get more into the fabric of what makes that event, that type of event, different with my featured guest, which I've just met for the first time. But that doesn't mean that we're strange to each other. I love to follow people on LinkedIn and engage with their posts when they bring a lot of value to the conversation of event productions. And Michael Lange has been one of those people that, although he's talking about broadcasting events, sports, and all the things that I'm really not that familiar with, it was so excited to just engage with the conversation, learn more, and gather as much information and knowledge as I can. So today, it is my great, great pleasure to being Michael Lange, Technical Director and Broadcast Solution Architect, the owner of Lange Productions based in Madison, Wisconsin. He's a Technical Director and Vimix Operator that helps production companies solve live streaming challenges by utilizing the cloud. And he also specializes in live sports entertainment broadcast. Michael has been in the broadcast industry for over 13 years, working on commercial productions, news productions, live sports, and corporate events. He's also currently providing cloud streaming facilities with AWS, which replaces the traditional remote broadcasting truck. As with many of the event production experts and event specialists that we've met on previous episodes, like I said, I have met Michael on LinkedIn, have been fanning his super helpful and relevant posts, and I would love to bring his perspective and his knowledge to the event planners that are listening to this show as well as the production friends that we've made over the years. And I feel like 
this would be such a great topic to delve into. That's why I would love to get us started. During this episode, just expect to really dive into the mystifying the world of live sports broadcast. What can we learn from this fascinating world and what elements can be applied to our virtual and hybrid events? Also, how has COVID and the cloud changed broadcasting events? What does a technical director do in a sports broadcast and how does one stay fit and healthy while on the road. You can learn more about Michael by following the links in the episode notes. And in the meantime, let's welcome our guest in. Welcome to the show, Michael. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, let me tell you, I'm feeling a little nervous running this behind the scenes because I'm like, oh no, Michael is watching every move I make. And I bet he's noticing like the delay and he's noticing this and that. And I'm like, oh shoot, what did I do to myself? You know, what's really funny about that is I do, you know, I work probably 150, 160 events a year, but doing this kind of thing is harder than all of that. <laughs> <laughs> when I have to run my own tech, it's a whole When you're on the other side, but also you have to actually put two words together that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah, I totally get it. That's why I try to keep it as simple as possible. That's not to say that I don't run over my words sometimes. So yeah, that's always fun. Now, Michael, we've become LinkedIn fans. That's, I guess, the best way <laughs> I can describe it. But I love this, you know, dynamic that brings people together when we share our expertise, like kind of like you open the curtain and show what's behind the scenes, what's in your world that honestly, otherwise, probably I wouldn't have any clue, you know, what are some of the challenges, what are some of the wins, some of the things that really you deal on the daily. And I would love to learn more about this world, your world. But before we even get into that part, how about we start with Michael behind the scenes, the normal Michael that has gotten into this field, like how has your journey been so far? What brought you here in the first place? And what keeps you here? It's funny because I tell everybody the story of how I got into television and it really just boils down to me being in the right place at the right time. But I started out working in a, at a small station that wasn't even affiliated with one of the networks about 15 years ago. It's a small independent station making local commercials. That was fun. That introduced me to a lot of the you know basics of video production that I had already done in college, but got into After Effects and motion graphics, doing that kind of thing. I learned a lot, and that lasted about three years. Then I moved on to the marketing department, a news station here in Madison at the ABC affiliate. I was an editor there for five years, and that's kind of where my technical directing journey started. The station produces the high school basketball tournaments every year, and they still do. They've been producing that show since the mid 80s, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sounds like a very so long time. <laughs> it's been a long time. Yeah. And I've been involved in the broadcast since I worked at the station. So I've been involved one way or another since 2004. So I was getting set to do the broadcast again, as I usually do. And the operations manager of the station at the time came to me and said, Hey, Mike, what you know how to TD, right? You know how to use a switcher. And I said, yeah, it's the same switcher I used in college. I kind of know how to use it. And he said, well, our TD double booked themselves and we need to fill in for two of the days, two of the four days of the tournament. And I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> but I stupidly <laughs> Baptized said- Baptized through fire. <laughs> right. I stupidly said yes. And then went home wondering what I had just gotten myself into. Luckily, I'd been around the show 
around that broadcast for several years already, and I knew what it was what was entailed, and I, I kind of knew what I needed to do. And I had watched previous TDs cut the show, so I knew I could do it. I still was a little nervous about <laughs> using the switcher. We were lucky enough to have a mobile truck, TV truck company here in Madison, not too far away from where I lived, and I already had known the owner at that time because this is a pretty small business, so everybody knows everybody after a pretty short time. And I called him up and I said, "Hey, can I have some time on the truck? I got to do this show. I need some just." need some reps on the switcher. What day is it in the shop? And will you power it up the truck for me? He's like, yeah, no problem. Whatever, you know, he gave me a random day, come in this time, we'll have it powered up. And then I called another local TD that I knew, and he was gracious enough to uh, come in and spend some time with me. So I built the show after a couple hours, I felt fairly confident I could do it and showed up a few days later cut the show. And that kind of launched the next phase of my career, which was getting into professional sports and pro sports broadcasting. One of the camera guys on our high school broadcast was the crewer for the Milwaukee market. And he said, hey, we need a TD. We're short one right now. We'd love to have you. When do you want to come in and train? So one thing led to another. And now I'm one of the main TDs in the Milwaukee market. And I do a lot of national broadcasts as well. So, you know, what's funny about this is that like in event production, many times, actually, you start to be the operator, the video switcher, and then you become a TD. Sounds like in broadcasting is kind of the opposite. Like you are a TD that basically calls the show right before you actually get hands on on a switcher. And let me tell you, a video switcher in broadcasting is nowhere close to like just a regular switcher in event productions, right? You look at all these buttons and you cannot not start sweating when you're thinking you're gonna have to know how to do this fast (laughs) if you've seen yeah and if you've seen my posts you've seen the shots of the control panel it's 1360 it's just over 1300 buttons on the that large control panel now thank you that's overwhelming but it, it can be but if you do it right and set it up right you whittle that down to about 50 buttons that you need to use on a regular basis But I should mention that right away because that was one of the first things that confused me when I started getting Mm -hmm. into corporate production as well Mm -hmm. is the term technical director. Like, what is it? They mean very different things in both these worlds. But before we get, Michael, I think actually we're going to touch on that just a little later in the conversation because there's a few more things that I want to ask you before we even get there because that comes with a completely set of topic of conversation. What I want to know as you're describing this journey that got you to the place where you're today, obviously stepping out of the comfort zone sounds like has been just saying yes to this new role and taking the initiative to actually get prepared for it. Because I mean, you could have also said yes, and then show up the day of and then completely tank the show because you are nowhere close to being prepared to do it right. So I'm curious, from your experience, what has been stepping out of your comfort zone look like in the past in any other circumstance in the pursuit of your passion today? It probably started when I started as an editor, I really didn't know much about creating graphics. I knew how to shoot and I knew how to do basic editing. And when you're working at a mid-market station as a promotions editor, you're doing all of the thing, all of those things yourself. Mm-hmm. You're, right. you're writing, you're shooting, you're editing, you're creating the graphics or modifying graphics that have been designed. So that was my first experience in stepping out of my comfort zone. The hardest thing that I did in that was the writing. Mm-hmm. That was a really big wake-up call. And when I started the job, I was not a good writer in any way. And our news director let me know that. So that's a good story too. For the longest time, the news director who would look at all the script when I was when I'm making news promos, he mm-hmm. would look at the scripts and make sure it was along the lines of what the story was actually going to be. And for the longest time, he thought I didn't like him. <laughs> 
because it was frustrating having yeah. script after script after script mm-hmm. rejected and to the point where the first couple of times he would just rewrite it for me. And, you know, yeah. that, that doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. But after a while, I started getting the hang of it. And once you see the structure and the formula and realize that there is a method to doing this and it's not just innate creativity, there's a way to do it and there's a way to do it well and you just mm-hmm. have to practice. Once you start seeing those things, you realize, well, this isn't so hard. I can do this. Well, what else can I do? I just have to learn the structure of mm-hmm. how to do it. So you would think that an editor then in that case has to have some type of a journalistic experience in order to put on those scripts, right? Is that even part of the job description or is it just something that inherently you have to know and learn? No, actually writing the story as a journalist is actually a totally different skill set than writing the promo. It's because writing the promo is more like well, it's commercial yeah. for the story. So it's a very different skill. And I was approaching it from like, a journalistic point of view. From a journalistic view. point of view, mm. because that's what I learned at school. We, we had, you know, writing classes and journalism classes, and that's what we knew. We didn't approach it from an advertising point of view, which is the way it needs to be looked at with promotions, because that's essentially what it is. Well, I feel like right now in today's times that we live, nobody's got time to read like a long blog post. Everything has to become this like promotional paragraph of like summarizing the best, you know, takeaways from this one piece of content that most people will just like skimp over. Yeah, absolutely. Everything needs to be condensed down. Like short form is king right now, I feel. Uh, That being said, there's some of my top performing, some of the most commented, most engaging posts have been quite long, actually, which surprised me. But yeah, I feel like today everything has to be so short. I feel like our attention spans have become so short. Everything needs to be condensed down into these quick shareable moments. That's the world we live in now. And it it does take some some getting used to because everybody's first instinct is to just explain everything as much as they can. Yeah. Well, now that we've learned actually quite a few new things about you, which is exciting, (laughs) let's jump into this next topic, which I would love to create the distinction of what is a proper broadcast and how is it different from a live stream? Because I feel like we were quite sure about the main differences before COVID, but after COVID, the lines have kind of sort of blurred a little bit. So post COVID, what makes a broadcast different than a live stream in the context of events? Well, now that I've done both. Let me start with the commonalities between the two is they're both a live sports broadcast and an event is designed to capture attention. So broadcasting a game, anybody can do it. You put up a couple cameras, cut around, capture the action. And if you're just capturing the action and showing the score, that's not very difficult to do. Presenting the information is easy. The difficult Mm -hmm. thing is capturing attention and making it exciting. So one of the biggest things that we're always looking for in a sports broadcast is the storylines. What's the story? What's happening going into this game? Oh, this this team is on a 14-game winning streak? That's never happened before in the NBA. It's the longest winning streak so far for the last 20 years. That's the story coming in. Or, hey, this team is expected to win the game. The other team's out shooting them, and they're historically not very good. The frustration of the winning team. Now that's the story. So we're always looking for those little moments, all those extra things to bring the emotion of the players, the emotion of the event to the viewer. Um, I love the underdog story. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) That's from a recent game, by the way. That was one of the recent storylines. Yeah. I love that. It's almost like in storytelling, there's always, you know, like an underdog, there is a hero, there's a villain and like, who's going to win? Is the hero? Is it the villain? Is it the helper to the hero? Right? (laughs) Right. And that is at the core of everything we do in the events business, whether it's a broadcast, whether it's an informational event. Yeah. So in the broadcast, we're always 
looking for these storylines, whether it be something about a specific player, about the team. And then during the show, we're looking on you know ways to advance that story. Sometimes the storyline changes. Sometimes there's more than one storyline. So we're always looking for those little ways to capture the attention of the viewer because it may not necessarily be just showing the action. You know, most of the time, the action is just kind of average. Yeah, there's great moments here and there, but what you really want is to bring some context to the game and advance those stories. So what are some effective ways to capture the attention of the viewer in the context of the storyline with the production tools at hand? You can do it several ways, but the best way is when you're in a multi-camera broadcast, like a typical broadcast that I work on, we'll usually have 15 cameras. Not all of them are manned, but we have a lot of cameras shooting all the time and you can't possibly see all of that live. So you're only gonna see one or two different angles during the actual action. So the way that we enhance that is we'll go into a replay sequence and we'll show you all the little things that you don't get mm. to see live that the camera operators see. So something happens, something exciting happens, we show you what just happened and then we show you all these little reaction shots. So you get these little moments of emotion from the players, from the fans, from coaches, whoever might be reacting that really adds energy to the moment. And since you're watching at home, you don't have the audience there next to you to get you excited and to bring mm -hmm. that energy. So we have to use the tools that we have, like I said, all these different cameras to add that energy. And then the commentators also, their excitement also helps out a lot too. They're, they're a big part of what drives the story forward. Absolutely. I am going to hold on to the question that came to my mind going into the TD, which we're going to definitely dive into a little deeper in the second part of the conversation. But so curious to know, how do you capture that on the spur of a moment? And your reaction time has to be so fast. I want to know more about that. But in the meantime, before we get there, how do you feel like because you've done broadcasting event and virtual events and live streaming events for COVID, during COVID and now post COVID, how do you feel like COVID has changed broadcasting events? And you can start maybe from a broad perspective by diving deeper into the area that you're an expert in, which is obviously live sports broadcasting. Yeah, the biggest thing that has changed is the location of the crew. Some positions still are on site, but a lot of positions have been moved off site. Mostly the positions that don't require a specialized control panel or special equipment, like graphics, for instance. A lot of networks and companies have moved that to be a remote position because it's easy to accomplish. All they have to do is remote into a computer somewhere, which we're all very familiar with doing now, and provide an intercom to that person. That's how it's changed is it hasn't really changed the number of positions or the number of people required. It's just changed where they are. That's honestly the biggest change. Technology drove a little bit of that too in the last three years. We saw massive advancements in, in technology and different workflows coming out of the COVID era that we probably wouldn't have seen for another four or five years mm -hmm. because we had to. Mm -hmm. So some of those things that sports production did during COVID have stuck, others haven't. So it's mostly location, location of people. So when we were talking about the differences between what makes, you know, broadcast different than a live stream in the context of events. We were, you know, trying to draw the parallels between what are some of the similar things. And I think that goes hand in hand with how broadcasting events have changed post-COVID with this additional labor support that can be remote, which I think is great. I mean, in the context of events and event productions, doing remote gigs like Vimex gigs on in-person events, that's very much common these days, whereas 
us before would have not probably even been considered as an option. As in, what are you talking about? You got to be here on site to do the job so I can watch you with my eyes as you do it, right? Not so much anymore because we have so much advancement that has happened just in the last two years that opens the door for like me working on a band that's happening in Asia and I don't even have to be there, which is fabulous. Now, what are some of the differences going back to that question, just to tie the whole circle there that you feel like have happened aside from the similarities, also the differences that exist between broadcasting events and events in particular that you feel like COVID has influenced one way or another? I think one of the biggest things is the willingness of event producers now to have that remote technician. Mm -hmm. Because in the live sports industry, we lost, after COVID, we lost about 25 to 30% of our freelance technicians. So labor became a very big problem after everything resumed. Labor availability, it was hard. It was really hard because the number of positions during COVID shrunk. We lost freelancers, everything went back to normal, and now those positions came back and we don't have anybody to fill the roles. Mm. So that really helped sell the idea that, oh, this person can do a game in California from an office in New York, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. So that really helped sell that idea. And it has helped open up technicians to wherever they're living. They can work on these events and it's really not, it's not that much of a hurdle anymore. I love how much yeah. that has also opened the opportunities for women like me in production and technology that before we would have had to travel. Not that we don't nowadays, we still do. But prior to that, like taking a week, two, three weeks out of the month to be gone on shows, that has a huge impact on a family, on your spouse, on your kids, and especially if you have a family, right? And mm -hmm. now that there's options where, you know, you can do a production role remotely it gives women like me you know that's why i'm so like <laughs> strong on creating opportunities that are available to women in av productions and live streaming and broadcasting how that has opened so many more possibilities and as much as you know we talk about covid was a bad thing i love to look at the silver lining like every time there's something bad there's always a silver lining and i feel like a lot of what we're just talking about is that silver lining you know new possibilities new opportunities and new ways to do things that before we have not considered. And to me, that's a win. Absolutely. And it allowed me to, the combination of that and then the tools that were available in the cloud, it allowed people to have, use equipment or provide equipment that you didn't have to go out and all of a sudden buy. You can just spin some resources up in the cloud on demand. Your bandwidth at home doesn't matter anymore. As long as it's enough to control whatever you're controlling, you've got a very flexible system that you can now start providing technical services for events and doing it from home. You get that balance. And that was the big thing that a lot of the, a lot of the technical directors that work with me with with some of my live streaming clients, that was the biggest thing they said is it's so nice to be at home for a couple of days a week instead of constantly having to go on the road or constantly having to drive mm -hmm. to a location. You just get that mental break and do what you love to do and feel like you have a, a normal schedule for, for a little while at least. Absolutely. Well, I can't wait to dive more into cloud <laughs> broadcasting, also the mental and physical fitness of creating some type of a balance, especially when you're constantly working events. But before we do that, we're going to take a brief moment to acknowledge our podcast sponsor and supporter, and we will be right back. 
Before we move any further, I wanted to give a quick shout out to our main sponsor, Trifan Events, which is a boutique event planning and production agency that will come alongside you, offering personalized event planning and technical support, strategic event design, production and technology management, and flawless execution for live, virtual, and hybrid events. The team at Trifan Events is passionate about planning and producing event experiences that get people involved with true moments of interaction, engagement, and co-creation while offering white glove treatment throughout the entire planning process, enabling you to reach your event goals with the use of creativity, production tools, and event technology. To find out how Trifun Events can plan and produce your event become memorable, go to trifunevents.com. Coming back to our conversation with our featured guest today, Michael Lange, Technical Director and Broadcast Solution Architect at Lange Productions. Okay, Michael, so in my world, the world of in-person and hybrid event productions, when I talk about a technical director, a TD, as you mentioned, that is a role that many times I fill in on the events that I produce, you know, via my production agency or even for events that I happen to freelance for. So this position, it's so key on the AV production team and the role is to basically basically oversee and manage the technical aspects of the event production, ensure that all equipment, system processes are working correctly, and that the event production runs smoothly. Now, some of the key responsibilities that fall under the technical director role in AV production, pre-event would include, you know, technical consultation, planning, putting together the equipment list needed for the event, making sure to accomplish the event's goal, creating layouts, coordinating with vendors and suppliers, creating a production schedule, and during the event, event itself, the TD will manage the technical aspects of the event. They oversee the technical crew and they also ensure that all equipment is running smoothly. They coordinate with maybe the audio person, video director, the switcher, the show caller. I mean, whatever, how many roles you have on that show based on the complexity of the show, lighting, you know, director. And this role, like it's super critical in ensuring that the AV production runs smoothly and successfully. Now in the world of broadcasting events, I'm curious. What is the difference, as you alluded to right at the top of our conversation, what makes a technical director, maybe the role, the responsibility, what makes it different than AV production's role, as mentioned in the job description that I just gave? <laughs> well, all the things that you mentioned also exist in broadcast. All the tasks are just far more distributed mm -hmm. because we're working on a much more compressed time frame. So for instance, all the pre-planning, the equipment lists, the show documents, the technical documents that we all rely on to be able to move quickly and get set up in under a day, are that's all done by a production management team ahead of time. So they may ask me a few questions ahead of time, but typically that's all pre-planned with the show's production management, the director and the producer. Is it because like a lot of the production behind the broadcasting show, it's pretty much the same. Like, you know, yes. you have to have this broadcasting truck that cannot be missing any pieces <laughs> from yes. it. Yeah, the, the, the vast overall yeah. chunk of the show doesn't change from week to week. So mm -hmm. when I'm doing the NBA and TNT, for instance, that Tuesday show is the same show every week with a few changes here and there. We might mm -hmm. add a camera here. We might add a couple of specialty cameras there. We might have an additional guest. But by and large, the show planning is already done. There's just a few minor changes to make. The rest of the responsibilities are all distributed amongst a few different people. So my role as a technical director is specifically set up and operating the video switcher. That's 
80% of what I do. The other responsibilities for me on show day are coordinating setup within my department, within cameras, making sure all the cameras are getting to the truck where they need to be, making sure all the video, all the monitors for talent, for reporters, for anyone else who needs them are where they need to be with the correct signals. Now, I'm not doing that myself, but I'm kind of coordinating all of that with the video department, with the camera department, and sometimes with audio, less or so. But I'm kind of like the troubleshooting hub. If something's wrong, it comes through me. I got to get somebody to deal with it. I got to send somebody out there to fix it. And then when you're working on a really compressed time frame, prioritization becomes a big thing. Okay. How much time do we have left? We've got to start pre-production at this time. We've got seven things to do. We only have time for five. Now I've got to start prioritizing. Okay, stop working over here. I need you guys over here to fix this thing that's not working because mm -hmm. that's more important. So there's a lot of that are on the setup day as well. In addition to talking to the producer and director and making sure that everything that they have planned is also going to happen. When you have a band and I come from, you know, live sound reinforcement as a sound engineer and we would get the band rider, right? So on the band rider, the technical rider, you'd have the equipment list and their needs of what they want, their monitor feed and what they want in the monitor. Is it common for the media team to have something similar when it comes to previewing? Like, I only want a signal from this camera and that camera and that camera. Or I only want a view of this or that. Is it common to accommodate that kind of a need or is it more like everybody gets this view. <laughs> no, that's exactly what we do. There's always a big technical document, which is it's critical for that to be accurate because if if anything in there is not accurate, it just slows us down. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's essentially lost time. But yeah, everybody works off that document to where from camera placement to monitor placement to what feeds go where to courtesy feeds to the house, courtesy feeds to the league, all of that stuff is in that document. So we rely on it heavily and then we basically take that and execute it. Usually we have 10 hours or less to do this, to set it up. We're not necessarily setting and doing the show in the same day, although sometimes we have to, but our time frame is always very compressed, so we always have to keep moving. So in one of your posts, you mentioned how there's a situation in which you either get on the show site or maybe you're remotely operating as a TD and you realize that, you know, you're so many, you know, hours away from the broadcasting going live, but there's a lot of things that are just not working, not <laughs> adding up. I would love to talk to you about a situation like, like a case, you know, study of how you run through that either in person or remote. I feel like the two case studies should be different because there is, I don't know, I feel like when you're remote, there's so much that it's outside of your control mm -hmm. and you still have to be able to figure out what's going on, even when you're like literally troubleshooting blind a lot of times. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're remote. When you're on site and everything is going wrong from a technical point of view or from a production management point of view, the best thing I can say is trust your technicians. They'll get it done. There's been very few shows where we haven't made air, and when we haven't, and usually it's usually due to something major like power. The post you're talking about, the story you're talking about, there was a show I did recently where everything was just going wrong. Nothing was working. The cable Murphy's Law. Yes. The cabling in the building was giving us a lot of problems. We literally had to clean every single strand of fiber that we were using. We had to clean out. There was dirty connectors. There was bad cables. We were just fighting everything. And to top it off, we couldn't start setting up until midday 
for a six o'clock event because there was another event going on in that morning. So everything was going wrong. It was 90 minutes to air. I had literally nothing. I built my switcher blind based on what I knew I needed, but I didn't have any cameras. I didn't have any transition graphics because they had to be transcoded to a different format because we had a server that we weren't expecting. I had nothing, but less than an hour to air, about an hour to air, I start seeing things pop up. 45 minutes to air, more things come in. Now about 30 minutes to going live. Everything was there just as we needed it. Now, was it fun? No. <laughs> it was. It's stressful, but I knew the crew. I knew they were going to get it done, and they did. It's one of those times where you just have to sit back. You're done with your responsibilities. Now you just have to trust your team to get the rest done, and they did. And we had a pretty successful broadcast, but... Yeah. Do you fall a little bit into wanting to troubleshoot yourself, knowing that you, you've walked through this before and you're like, I understand that you're here to do this, but like, if I did it myself, it'd be so much faster. <laughs> oh, there's, yeah, you always have to resist that urge. But yes, there's, I do want to go troubleshoot myself, but I can't because if I leave this position and go do this, I'm going to miss something else that comes in that has to be dealt with. So yeah, mm -hmm. there is a lot of that, but I just have to, you know, remain calm know that it'll get handled by the right people or I delegate the right people to go do it and it gets done and there just has to be there has to just be a lot of trust on your crew and we typically have that so so what happens when this is something that happens during a, a time when you're remotely directing switching calling the show that's a lot more challenging. It depends who you have. During COVID, when it was there was no technicians on site, when we were solely relying on the host to do it, that was really challenging. Mm -hmm. It got easier over time as we find the setups and made things easier and the hosts learn their equipment. But What yeah, do you that, define as the host, just so our audience understands the concept? Oh, as when I say host, we weren't able to send a technician into someone's place and get either a guest or a host for the show that we mm. were streaming, anybody who was going to appear on camera, basically. Okay. But um, for broadcasting events, were you still doing that remotely? Or sports no. events? Particularly. Uh, I was still in a in a TV truck, okay. but the event we were doing wasn't necessarily where the truck was. And we would just take a bunch of camera feeds from, say, the team was playing in a different city that day. We would just take the camera feeds from that venue back to our truck, our home truck in Milwaukee, and do the show from there. That was always challenging, too, because you can't By what see means? what's going on. You can't see what's going on. Communication is tough because you can't always get somebody on the phone mm. um, if they're not listening on intercom. You're just yeah. you're really dependent on the technology working. And then sometimes the technology that connects you to the remote crew doesn't work too. So, yeah. So probably that's where, I guess, taking the conversation into the cloud solution architect that you are proud of have become one. And you mentioned that you have gotten certification in, which honestly, I had to run a Google search and find out exactly what it is. <laughs> the AWS certification? Exactly. Here's what I found. So I'm going to read what I found and then you can dissect it. Okay. You can mm -hmm. definitely go into more detail. So a certified cloud a solution architect is a professional who has earned a certification from a recognized cloud computing vendor or organization such as Amazon Web Services and has now a strong understanding of cloud computing concepts, including cloud architecture, infrastructure, networking, security, and deployment models. They are knowledgeable about various cloud-based services such as compute, storage, database, analytics, and can design solutions that meet the unique needs of the client or organizations. That sounds amazing. Now, <laughs> practically, <laughs> what exactly is your actual job description as a cloud solution architect? 
So my production company provides the, these technical services for live streaming, essentially. And it's basically taking resources that are available in the cloud, someone else's computers, in a data center, you know, in Amazon's data center, and putting our production tools on it, like vMix or OBS or whatever switcher you want to use, as long as it's a software application, putting it on there, setting it up just like you would on a piece of physical hardware on site and using it in the same way. So during COVID, getting hardware, getting graphics cards, getting any kind of gear was almost impossible. We didn't have any other choice. We had to use what was available and that turned out to be the cloud. And it turned out to work pretty well. <laughs> so how is it different than say running it from your computer, your machine, your Vimex machine? What are the benefits of running it in the cloud? From an operator's standpoint, it doesn't look any different. You have the same type of control panel in front of you, the same software interface. An operator would not know if you didn't tell them it was a remote machine. Most of the time they wouldn't know. So the benefits are you don't have to really ever worry about broken hardware. If something's not working in the data center, you reboot the machine, it'll come back up on hardware that's good. So that's the biggest thing is there's really, that troubleshooting is gone. The automation built into the cloud takes care of these hardware problems for you. You're always running on the latest hardware and it's kind of like built-in redundancy. The drawback is it is more complicated and you have to deal with things like latency, like mm. we're all familiar with, and just a stronger knowledge of networking, firewalls, corporate firewalls. <laughs> and, you know, just there's an additional layer of troubleshooting to get through, mm -hmm. especially for a, a one-off event. I am curious now for anyone that's interested to learn more, is there the certification that you mentioned, is there something that you can just go to like Amazon WS, you know, skill builder to get yes. it? Or how many levels is it? Like how long does it take? Any, you know, information that you have to share about that? Yeah, you can go to AWS Skills Builder. They have a whole set of tests. Most of them are very IT-centric, but the Cloud Practitioner certification just gives you a general overview of get basically what's available in the cloud and how to put it together. The media and entertainment space is still really new to the cloud, so we don't have the same level of mature tools that other markets do. And it's actually a very small market compared to the rest of the, the industries that use the cloud. But things are getting a lot better and it does open up a lot of possibilities for doing events in a different way that you may not have expected. And in some cases, it can save quite a bit of budget too, depending on what's involved. So if you were to give it like a brief summary of how the cloud has changed the broadcasting of events, what would you say that has been? I think the biggest thing is it's made everything more flexible. We're not constrained to this control room or that control room. It has really opened up the possibility where half the crew can be in this location, another part of the crew can be in this location. And if you need more control room resources, spin up some more resources in the cloud. So it's just, it's really made things far more flexible than they used to be. I feel like there's also a bit of like mystery attached to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. We have to demystify it more. Like, I feel like this probably would take an entire different episode just talking about, you know, cloud computing and the cloud tools that are available. And I was listening into a webinar recently. I think it was produced by EWS as an introduction to the cloud services that they offer. And to be honest, half of it made sense. Half of it was just kind of like, I just don't yet understand the practical application of this. Like I need some actual real life examples. 
Yeah. There's... Also, the presenter was so slow speaking that it literally put me to sleep halfway through. And I was like, can you please? And I again, I, I might be, you know, the one that's the problem here because I listen to books at 1.5 speed. And I was like dying just for this <laughs> presenter to like come up with the next word. <laughs> right. If you're doing something like a well-produced town hall meeting where everybody's going to be on conferencing application anyway, like Zoom, that's mm -hmm. a perfect application for using the cloud because you're going to be bringing those feeds in from everybody, you know, from everybody remotely anyway. Mm -hmm. So the switcher, you know, you pull every, everything into a central point in the cloud and then broadcast it out from there. Everything isn't coming into an office somewhere on one internet connection, I guess is the best way mm. to put it. You've got this highly reliable, extremely fast, dedicated internet connection into the data center wherever your cloud resources are running. So that becomes far less of an issue. You're, you're not likely to have any bandwidth related issues or stream related issues because of that. So that's one application. Another one that's becoming a little bit more prevalent in the sports world now is alternative streams. The biggest example I can think of is, is, is the Manning cast where Peyton Manning mm -hmm. talks about football with other people while they're watching the game. That kind of production doesn't really need a studio. You've got two or three hosts in their homes just with a static camera, just like this, and a feed from the broadcast truck. Audio yeah. mixing is very simple. There's not a lot of camera cuts. It's just a very simple put together show, but that can be And done. they comment on the show. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Very that cool. That can be done from the cloud. I love it. Well, I can't wait to pick your brain on some practical ideas uh, for corporate events and conferences and those uh, type of instances where we still have the in-person event, especially now that we're in this state of hybrid, whatever that looks like, mm -hmm. and how we can make those type of events more engaging with using cloud solutions. Because I feel like the next big challenge is that most people have gone right back to in-person events the way we used to do them before COVID. COVID because it sounds like so complicated and it's like pulling hairs just trying to get technology to work or if you don't have enough bandwidth at whatever venue you're at that becomes a problem as well so offering options and opportunities outside of the common path I think that's super exciting and this could be that opportunity that we haven't necessarily tapped into so much because it's not a known option you know and I think there's a I'm talking for cloud stuff that I'm doing is very different from some of the other cloud tools that are coming out. Like there's a lot of new graphics solutions that are coming out where you don't need a piece of graphics hardware anymore to create great looking graphics for your broadcast or interactive graphics for your live stream. Those solutions are as simple as copying and pasting a browser link into your software and you've got a great looking overlay and mm -hmm. some of those solutions you can do without even needing a switcher so there's a lot of really cool things that are starting to come out that can add that extra engagement that everybody's looking for to events and to live streams before we move on to the next topic, which is our last topic of conversation today, Michael, I believe you have some courses. Is it in this particular area? Yes, I do have a vMix Jumpstart course, which is basically mm -hmm. for anyone looking to learn the basics of vMix. We cover everything, you know, from setting up inputs to audio mixing to building graphics. It's actually all based around building a two-person style podcast show with real graphics that I use for real production. So we take that context. All right, you're going to build this two-person style interview show with two remote guests. Here's how we do it. I find it a lot easier to learn something when you already know what you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. So our course is available and get a link for you to add to the show notes. Would love to. Yeah. Now, as we are coming close to the end here, 
you know, like you mentioned earlier, there's definitely a lot of challenging situations that come with producing events, working events, operating. I mean, all aspects of event sometimes can be stressful. And let's be honest, as event professionals, we know that this is a demanding job, yet we still do it because we love it. <laughs> I don't know if it's the adrenaline rush or what it is, but we're still here. The ones that are here, especially long-term, they have a passion for it. We are juggling so many tasks many times and working long hours and bustling from one event to the next. In the process, sometimes we forget to take care of ourselves, like mm -hmm. to feed this one machine that is the one thing that keeps the whole show going. And I would love to hear some of your strategies and your tips on how, in your experience of being on the road, how have you been able to prioritize your well-being to keep your body fit and your mind sharp and achieve success in the exciting yet challenging sports broadcasting industry? Well, I'm going to say the first thing is it's difficult. <laughs> it's very <laughs> difficult given this job because of the, the hours the lack of sleep sometimes, the early flights. Sometimes you, you do struggle just to fit in moving your body, I guess. One of the biggest things I do is try to stay away from the snack table, bring my own snacks so that I know what I'm eating and I know that it's good for me, first of all. Move whenever you can. Sometimes on a broadcast, I'll be sitting in the same chair for you know four or five hours at a time. Yeah. I like to stand up during commercial breaks, especially if I'm feeling tired. Stand up for that 90 seconds and just get some, you know. Do some jumping jacks. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> Stretching, moving, just move your body. Just get up out of the chair because you tend to start to fall asleep after a while. So I do that going for walks on my lunch break. We're in venues. Even if I can't get a real workout in, I'll go walk. If I'm able to, I'll go into the venue and walk up and down the stairs yeah. for half an hour. And since I'm not able to walk a long distance with the time I have, I can get a pretty decent amount of movement in doing that. But if I can, I'll always try to get a real workout in the hotel gym. But yeah, stay away from the snacks. <laughs> Let's find out the reason why you do it for yourself, because there's plenty of people that basically have the same excuses that we just mentioned, right? It's hard. It's it hard. takes determination. It takes discipline. It takes wanting to do it in the first place, like walking up and down the stairs for 30 minutes during a lunch break to someone that is like, I feel so tired right now just thinking about it. Why would you <laughs> want to do it? Like, how does that make you feel that is different for when you don't do it? It gives me energy. If I'm tired, that's probably the number one I, one thing I can do to, to wake up is to move around. Just anything, any movement I can do at that point is is what I'm going to do. And when you're done, you, it just makes you feel good. It gives you that mental break of sitting in a dark control room all day and dealing with stressful situations. You have to get that balance. Otherwise, it will just, the pressures of the job will get to you. So you have to find a way to get that balance. And it's important to take time off too. A lot of us just want to, as freelancers, we want to work as much as we can, but I've never regretted taking a week off. Not once. <laughs> yeah. So that's the other thing I've learned to do is, yes, you can take two, three weeks off in the summer. It's okay. It'll be fine. And the jobs will come back. It won't go yes. away. You're not going to be without work just because you turn off your email, computer, phone, mm -hmm. whatever, to take that break for yourself. I couldn't agree more. And filling your endorphins tank, as you just mentioned, that yeah. you're doing, that is the payback that I'm going after as well. It's hard for people to understand that if they're not normally active until they start doing it and they see the difference. And that's why I'm trying to go after that feeling. Like, why does this matter to you? 
you to make you want to do it because unless it changes your life somehow, you're going to stay in your habits. 500 energy drinks <laughs> laid out <laughs> on the tech table. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I've, I've seen far too many people in this industry just not in good health, especially, you know, it's unfortunate, especially if they have families or if they, you know, have loved ones that, that care about them. It's not uncommon to see colleagues of mine having heart attacks in their 40s because of just the demands of the yeah. job. So got to do that for myself, for my family. Yeah, like you mentioned, fill the endorphin tank. It just, you have to take care of yourself. And the better I feel, the better I can do my job as well. Your mental sharpness and your reaction time, especially in sports, has to be there. And if I'm tired, I can't do the show any favors. You know, if I'm slow, it's on me. I have to. Even if we're, you know, doing a show late at night, it's still my responsibility to make sure that I'm ready for it. So, yeah, you just got to do what you can and find the time is the best way to put it. You have to make yeah. the time, I should say. You have to make the time. Absolutely. I love those tips that you just gave and the reasons and the information they share with us, Michael. Now, for anyone that would like to stalk you on LinkedIn, <laughs> where can they connect with you and where are the places that you like to direct our audience to? I'm primarily on LinkedIn right now at either search for Michael Lang or Lang TV. You'll find me there. I do a lot of writing because I usually do it while I'm traveling. So it's the easiest thing for me to do. You can check out my online courses and feel free to shoot me a message message or a text or a comment on a post. I respond to quite a few of them. I like hearing from people. I like hearing what they're going through as well. And honestly, it helps me come up with ideas for new content, stuff that resonates with people. Someone was saying something around the lines of creating content while speaking from your experience is the best content that there is. <laughs> Because, <laughs> you know, literally talking about things that you might have had challenges with or overcame or you're still struggling with looking for solutions or whatever it is that it is. But out of that authenticity and vulnerability of actually sharing that, a lot of people get to learn lessons that maybe they don't have to learn the hard way. And I am such a fan of a lot of your posts because of that, you know, openness to share, like I said, behind the curtain, what's happening, some of the things that I don't necessarily, even though in event production, we have our own set of challenges to deal with, but I don't deal with those type of challenges. And it's fascinating to just learn more from that world. So with that being said, thank you so much, Michael, for joining me on the air today. Thank you for being open to sharing your wealth of knowledge and also making time for this because we all know traveling, working events, freelancing, that is the full-time job and some mm -hmm. on top of that. So I appreciate you very, very much for that. Well, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, for everyone that's listening, please take a moment to subscribe to our growing YouTube channel and do stay tuned for what's coming up next. And also stay healthy, happy and fit. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Events Demystified podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to review it, rate it, and share it with other event professionals that could benefit from it. Connect with us on social at Events Demystified Podcast. We would love to hear from you and what you're up to. If you'd like to learn more about Tree Fan Event Services and find out if we're a good fit in supporting your event, can we help your event be successful with a 20-minute free consultation? Link in the episode's notes. Thanks for tuning in.